You know, when you think about the most attractive person you know, the healthiest person, you'll always describe them in terms of radiant, energetic, passionate, glowing. And, uh, you know, I've been in aesthetics for a long time. We see people who come in who, you know, they, they want to be beautiful, but they also need to be beautiful from the inside out. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. It is my pleasure uh, to participate in some Collective Insights with Dr. Molly Malouf. Uh, who are we? Why are we here? We are here because we are both part of the advisory board, the medical advisory board for Neurohacker Collective. Uh, I'll take just a minute, introduce myself. Molly, I'll ask you to do the same. Uh, let's wave to the folks. Oh, <laughs> we're not, we're, we're only on audio. So there's an audio wave. Okay. Anyway, we're going to be the co-host for the session. We'll be sharing our knowledge for some ways to enhance skin health and beauty from the inside out. Um, I've had this passion of integrative medicine, functional medicine, and aesthetics for decades. And I finally put them together and uh, in our newly released book called Feed Your Skin Right, Your Personalized Plan for Radiant Beauty. And, and it, really, I've got this passion for how we create glowing skin from within. I went to Duke University for medical school, family practice at the University of Oregon, but most of my work has been spent teaching and educating my colleagues. <clears throat> I created many, many online courses, one of them being a 40-hour CME course for in personalized nutrition for practitioners for the American Nutrition Association, and that, that just launched. I've also taught at A4M. I am on the faculty at Duke Integrative Health, and I hang my hat in San Diego, uh, where I'm CEO of a company called ChangeWell, and where I grow impressive tomatoes, which is easy to do in San Diego. So Molly, um, Dr. Molly, share a little bit of your background with our listeners as well. Hi, my name is Dr. Molly Malouf, and I started my career um, as a medical doctor, which I still am, classically trained in allopathic medicine, but then decided to build a medical practice around optimizing health and extending health span rather than, rather than just fixing sickness. I also concurrently worked with many different companies and brands in the personalized health space, in some biotech, supplements, food, you name it. And I am a um, soon to be published author, writing a book called The Spark Factor, getting published in January, all about how to biohack energy capacity in women. And then um, let's, last but not least, I'm an entrepreneur and have started a few companies of my own, but I'm also the spokesperson of Qualia Skin. So here to talk today about why I love this product and why I love, you know, just talking about skin and why skin is such a beautiful window into our health. Um, absolutely great. Now you've built a lot of your career on understanding this concept of health span. But this is a concept that may or may not be so familiar to our, our listeners. And it's also a concept that, you know, we need to sort of figure out where's the glowing skin uh, uh, participate. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So one of the most interesting things I've learned in the last 10 years is, well, first off, some of my friends who've recently seen me, who hadn't seen me in like three years, they're like, wow, you look younger. And one of the things that's really gotten me to age in reverse is really, really mastering blood sugar metabolism. And, you know, this is, this is fundamental to health, but yet a lot of people just don't worry about it until they have a problem. But in my situation, in my like early thirties, I discovered I was basically borderline pre-diabetic and I did not have any idea how this could have happened. Aside from the fact that I grew up drinking a lot of soda as a kid, eating a lot of junk food, fast food as a teenager. And I really do think I taxed my pancreas um, for a lot of my early life. Basically in my situation, I was like, you know, I, I need to understand blood sugar because this was a problem that I experienced. And I realized that a lot of people have this problem. Um, we have way more people that have prediabetes before they even realize that they have it. And a lot of people who have prediabetes will convert to diabetes. So it's really important you catch this stuff early. But the reason why it's important for skin, which is what we're here to talk about today, is because high blood sugar does what's called glycation. 
of the proteins and the collagen in your skin, which will cause premature wrinkling, cause um, increased insulin output, by the way, just high blood sugar spikes will cause insulin to spike. And high insulin levels will also cause problems with your skin because it will increase acne. So if you struggle with acne or wrinkles and you feel like you look older than your age, then you may want to look at your blood sugar. And it was really getting my blood sugar slowly tuned back to normal through increasing fitness, increasing weightlifting, increasing cardio, lowering my carbohydrate intake, really reducing refined carbohydrates, really reducing sugar, um, and adding certain supplements to my regimen like carotenoids and um, collagen and minerals that really got my skin to glow. And to me, I'm like happier with my skin now than ever, because it really feels like it, it reflects what's going on inside my body. So um, this, we're number one, obviously. The United States is number one because we eat about 125 pounds of refined sugar a year. And when that's four or five wow. times more than we really should, that's the average. Wow. So <clears throat> the issue from an aesthetic viewpoint, and yeah. you nailed it uh, about being glycation, is that when these this excess sugar binds to collagen, it actually makes the collagen brittle. It changes yeah. the shape and the, the elasticity of it. Now, where this is shows up is on these very fine cross-hatched little um, mm. checkerboard fine lines on the skin. It's not the deep wrinkles. It's not the motor yeah. wrinkles. It's in this um, sort of like a smoker's appearance. When yeah. we, smokers will have that that fine sort of checkerboard sort of skin. So, mm. uh, you know, I think that, that uh, that's a big piece of it. So important, uh, getting, uh, getting metabolic control. You know, the, the skin ages, essentially, the mitochondrial theory of skin aging. As yeah. we age, we have fewer mitochondria. Uh, they work less effectively. Yeah. And I think this is really one of the roles for the antioxidants and um, to actually enhance mitochondrial function. So, yeah. uh, and, and then all of those things, of course, are uh, uh, very, very uh, helpful that you mentioned. Yeah. So in my book, I, I, I really, I address these four questions and I'm sure you get these four questions all the time as well. That yeah, I'm what sure. Should I, what should I eat? What supplements should I take? Um, what topicals should I apply? And what procedure should I have? Now, most of this, you know, when I get asked this, is most of the time people want to, well, just tell me the one thing I should do. Just give me one answer. And, you know, I, I guess I always uh, turn to diet first and the primacy of diet. Right. Uh, you know, we're both spokespeople for quality of skin. I love quality of skin. It is a fabulous formulation. We'll talk more about it in just a little bit. But the reality is, you can't out supplement a crappy diet. Right. Uh, you and I cannot prescribe for patients or recommend for patients a diet, uh, a, a supplement regimen that's going to help them get over eating like crap. Now, I know we, we all both talk about the sad diet, the standard sure. American diet. Uh, let's kind of go back and forth about that just a little bit. What's your, what's your thoughts on the sad diet and skin? And uh, let's share some tips with the folks out there about what they really should yeah. be doing with diet so, first. I was looking at the epidemiological shifts in nutrition in the last hundred years. And one of the things that I was kind of astonished by was that if you just look at globally, what's really wrong with the diet of the world, we are eating too much vegetable oil. We're eating too much refined carbohydrate which is basically dense, a cell, a cellular carbohydrate, carbohydrate that has had the germ protein fat removed from it. We are also in fiber for that matter. We are also consuming far too much processed meat and confined animal operation meat, animals that are raised in really inhumane conditions where they're sick and unhealthy. And we are also consuming, um, too few vegetables, too few fruits too like way, way too little produce. And so if you just look at these problems in society globally, um, you can understand that the American diet is largely comprised of packaged processed foods, which are dense acellular carbohydrates that are often fried in vegetable oil. They are 
like fast food is largely confined animal operation meat, processed cheese, um, refined bread, refined corn syrup in soda, um, white potatoes fried in vegetable oil. Um, you know, pizza is largely in America, not healthy, you know, cheese made from a artisanal farm. It's from, it's from processed cheese from like large factory farms and it's refined, um, it's refined wheat in which, which often has glyphosate in it. So we've got a lot of things that are in the human diet that are just not optimal for health period. Right. So, so if, if you, if we go back a bit, you yeah. can go back to before World War II. Yeah. And at that point in time, we were getting uh, a much healthier diet, particularly in terms of the, the fatty acids. Now, fatty yeah. acids are critical for skin health and beauty. Right. One, of the, uh, uh, one of the folks who was on your Instagram, they wrote in, well, what about dry, itchy skin? Mm. There are two pieces to dry, itchy skin. The first has to do with having inadequate amounts of the omega-3. Omega-3. So uh, what happens is that, and I think this is an important concept for our listeners. Yes. It, it has to do with the balance. So it started out ideally prior to World War II, we were getting a, a mixture of three to four to one omega-6s to omega-3s. Not, not, not all the omega-6s are yeah. bad, obviously. No, no, no. And actually so, that's, so I just want to add a point. It's not that omega-6s are bad on their own. The problem is, is that when they are vastly outweighing the amount of omega-3s right. that we consume ratio. and the ratio, but also yes. when they are repeatedly fried or heated at high temperatures, they become far more rancid. And yes. in fact, in animal and human studies, more carcinogenic. Yes. So the, the processing, the frying, the industrial frying, and then the, the the ratio being off to me is the reason why omega sixes are yeah. problematic. But and, also, we are consuming up to five hundred to seven hundred calories more yes. per yes. day of vegetable oil. So yeah. even if they aren't bad on their own, anything in excess is problematic for for health. So let's bring this to the skin. Uh, the skin uh, obviously needs these uh, essential fatty acids. But the other piece of that, and and this is where you know you and I really. Uh, sync up around the concept around inflammation. So what happens, a, a portion of these omega-6s get converted into something called prostaglandins. Prostaglandins are inflammatory molecules and they go throughout the body. One of the places they go is to the skin as well. So we are seeing a, an inflammatory diet that obviously begins in the gut. We can talk about the, the journey with the gut in just a little bit. But I, I think that that's, that's so important. So we've got the sugar, we've got the lack of really good balance between the omega-6s and omega-3s. We have how people cook today, which you, you've raised that issue of, of, of cooking on high temperatures, which actually causes um, these, these uh, advanced glycation end products also. Yeah. So, all of that, I think, is is really important in terms of what not to eat. Now, right. the what, so what, to, what do we eat? Well, yeah, here's the way I look at it. Well, I have a garden. I have a COVID garden. I'm a New Yorker. I never had a garden before. I didn't know anything about gardening. And I put in this COVID garden. And every day I go out there and I look at my vegetables. And I think that I've got 5,000 phytonutrients Wow. The chemicals in these plants of different colors, whose job is to protect the plant against the ravages of the sun and the wind and pests. And so if you think about it that way, you want to get as many of these phytonutrients uh, from different colored plants into your body as you can. So you lean on vegetables, you lean on fiber, you lean on uh, unrefined carbohydrates. and and that becomes the basis of a diet, nuts, seeds, fruits, whole grains. And then we get into um, beliefs and philosophies. And we go with the question of what kind of protein sources and how much protein. Right. So, That's a, this is a big question I've been trying this to, talk is a, about. Love to talk to you about this. This is let, let's let's riff on this a little one, because yeah. I think this is. This is intriguing to me because, you know, if you look at, for example, protein requirements, um, yeah. 
they vary according to age, they to objectives. A, a bodybuilder right. needs significantly more than a, um, or just an athlete, just an, an endurance athlete. athlete. Endurance athletes need more. So you know, we're looking at any place. Now, let's say you are a. I, I happen to be a seventy kilogram person. I'm a 70 kilogram sure. man. So the normal recommendations about 0.8 um, uh, uh, grams of protein per kilogram. So 56, right. 60. 0.7 is the recommended. 0.7. Point, excuse me. 0.7. That's right. 0.7. So let's say that's little. And I do as well. Uh, it, particularly if you want to build muscle, if you're doing any uh, resistance training and if as you age you are getting sarcopenia sarcopenia right. loss of muscle mass or if you are a teen and you want to build muscle i mean you that's important for them so i think that the protein requirements are you know any place from 0.8 to one and a half uh times uh, uh the, the uh, body weight so in uh kilograms so sometimes even two and i've seen and I've seen studies with older individuals where they're doing resistance training and eating more protein. So what are your recommendations for protein sources? You do yours and I'll do mine. And, well, I mean, look, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a researcher for health span extension. So the problem I have with um, a lot of the world right now is this deep sense of we absolutely must be eating plant-based proteins. And the reason why I'm, I have problems with that is number one, uh, a lot of the processed soy in these fake meats um, is a processed food product. And so it's just, I, I don't really understand why we think it's okay to eat processed meat, but it's, or it's not okay to eat processed meat, but it's okay to eat processed soy. Um, my, the, the, my reasoning behind this is that if you even just look at Japanese populations that are known to consume soy, they don't consume more than two and a half servings a day. And so what we're seeing is like in America, everyone eats more of everything. And so I, I do see a lot of people um, consuming quite a lot of soy in America. And, I, and there is evidence, at least in women, that, you know, greater than, um, I think it's 40 milligrams of isoflavones a day, which is at, at least in, I'd have to look up the numbers, but more than four servings of soy per day um, will inc increase problems with fertility. So I do think that soy is a useful, I mean, I consume soy, I have tofu in my fridge, but I try not to get more than like one to two servings a day. Um, I do do consume some other plant-based protein powders, um, like fermented per, per, fermented um, uh, pea protein is something that I love. But my personal preference for protein comes from meat, and I enjoy fish. I enjoy I do eat lean red meat because I'm an APOE4 carrier. I do consume um, chicken. I consume game. My favorite meat to eat is wild game personally, but um, you know, not everybody has the advantages that I have, which is I can get access to high quality food because I have friends that are hunters and family, you know, that, and I have friends that are, that are farmers and, and have different farms. So I think we need to really start figuring out how are we going to feed the, feed the world with proper protein and how are we going to create regenerative practices that are honorable to animals. Sure. But um, in the meantime, you know, you can get, I think protein personally comes, should come from both plants and animals if you're going to tolerate them. That being said, people who struggle with autoimmunity, which is rising in our country, which is usually a result of gut dysfunction, first and foremost, compounded with genetics, um, you do see people struggle with the plant-based um, protein products. You see them struggle with beans and legumes and yeah. grains. And so in those individuals, they really do need to eat a more ancestral diet and they often thrive on a more ancestral diet. So it's a really tricky subject because a, there's a lot of people saying, you know, the meat that we're consuming is destroying the environment. But on the other hand, it's like the, some of these plant-based diets are actually just not conducive to health in certain individuals. And I think we're just really beginning to understand how to predict which people are going to thrive on different diets. But a lot of it right now is trial and error. Yeah, there, there is some good uh, nutrigenomic work being done. We can talk about that. I talk about yeah. that booked to a large extent. Yeah. Uh, uh, there are these SNPs, these single, yep. single nucleotide polymorphisms, these little genetic variants that predispose people to various skin conditions. And in terms of uh, glycation, we talked about that. In terms of pigmentation, in terms upon needs for certain nutrients that are greater. But uh, since we're talking on the subject of 
proteins and meats. The most common question that I get asked when I speak to consumers all the time is, what about collagen? I mean, you can't go to uh, uh, any sort of meeting uh, or a conference and without that question being raised. So I get to ask a lot about that. And, and here's where I come down on it. Um, because obviously we both are firm believers in the neurohacking right. product. There's no really no collagen in that. So my sense about collagen is following. One, yeah. I think we've done an incredible disservice in the aesthetic community by teaching people collagen, 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 collagen. Mm -hmm. And there is this mindset that we have set up in many people. I'm yeah. going to eat this collagen and it's going to go right here in my face. See this little spot right here where I no, need it to fill in. And that's certainly not going to happen. So, you know, the reality is you eat this collagen, it's broken down into its constituent amino acids. And there's three essential, there's three amino acids that make up collagen, two of which are essential, yeah. uh, glycine and proline. Those are two essential yeah. amino acids. And the third one is hydroxyproline, which the liver can make if you have enough vitamin C and enough iron. So if you eat meat, you are getting essentially all of those amino acids. If you eat high quality fish, you're getting all those amino acids. Yeah, yeah. And then the question becomes for the vegan, for the vegetarian who's not eating a lot of that, yeah. is it helpful to eat, take some collagen? And, and I've kind of moved a little bit off the, you know, don't waste your money with collagen to, you know, I could see a role for this in some folks who are not eating a diet with meat and fish in it. Um, so I think there's a room for it, but we just can't have this simplistic mindset that we're going to uh, eat collagen and it's going to go rushing to our skin. It's just amino acids that go into the body and the body determines what it's going, what's it's going to create uh, how they're going to it's going to use its nutrients. Uh, so I think that that uh, that's a fun question. Well, let's let's let me ask you this one because we're both firm believers in quality of skin. Now, sixty to eighty percent of Americans take a multivitamin, multivitamin yeah. complex. So the question that many people will ask both of us is do I really need a special supplement for skin health and beauty? Don't I get enough of that when I take my multiple vitamin and my multiple mineral? So how do you answer the question? And I'll tell you how I answer that question. I mean, the main reason why I think qualia is so useful is um, there's just a lot of really interesting research on health span uh, with carotenoids. And it has all of these plant pigment pigments from um, you name it, pomegranate, peach, amla fruit, and these carotenoids have been shown, at least in some clinical studies, to actually enhance the way you look. So they can make you more attractive to the opposite sex. And they've actually done studies on this. And so I think the reality is, is that most people really pursue beauty because the biological imperative underneath the surface is to survive and reproduce. So people want to be seen as attractive to the opposite sex because it enhances their chances of finding a partner and having, you know, children, which I don't think a lot of people realize is this programming that's running the show underneath the surface of a lot of your behaviors. So um, I noticed that when I started taking qualia and I gave some to my sister to take, both of us developed a lot rosier skin. And it was almost like it gave us like a natural rosy glow. And I think to me, if you, if you struggle with feeling like your skin has that beautiful glow, it can actually really make a difference. I mean, I saw a totally difference when I started using it. So I, I approached it a little differently, you know, yeah, having, love to hear about your, having your spent, uh, you know, a year and a half producing a, a course on personalized nutrition and, and all the work I did for the book, I was going to do my own formulation. And I, I really wanted to lean very heavily on patented ingredients. Because with patented ingredients, you know, you've got quality, you know, you've got potency, you know, you've got safety, you know, that there have been some studies done on the ingredients that have been reported on and are good studies. So I started to assemble those, uh, those uh, patented in, uh, ingredients. And lo and behold, <laughs> the list that I had, and I put together was very, very similar 
to what Paula mm -hmm. had. So if you think about it, you want ceramides. Ceramides, we, we use mm. them topically in dermatology uh, a lot, but there's good data showing that these oral ceramides, which huh. are, which, uh, uh, which actually help with the skin barrier. Um, they're, they're part of the glue that holds these skins together. And so very often, um, so there's one ingredient that's hydro peach, which is Japanese peaches, the, yeah. the inside of it. And that is a ceramide rich product. Really, really important. Uh, in fact, most plastic surgeons, dermatologists will not do procedures on people if they have sort of leaky skin, leaky skin with poor skin barrier. So ceramides are important. Uh, I'm a big fan of the red orange complex. It's the oranges that are grown on the side of Mount Sicily by a, and produced by a company called Bionap. And what they do, oh. is they, they, they have these blood red Sicilian oranges and they use three of them and, and, and they're grown. There's no trucking. Uh, I mean, essentially they're, they're not refrigerating or, or trucking these herbs far, the farm is right there and the manufacturing's there. You know, the, the resveratrol from the French grapes, I think is important. You mentioned pomegranate. And then they've got just the right amount of some minerals and some vitamins without going overboard. So I think that, you know, if you think about that, they've created these stacks for skin resilience and skin firmness and skin elasticity. And, I really admire the the formulators there. I mean, I think uh, uh, they do a superb job of putting together such a great blend. So I think that you know, I what my personally my personally do is I I do take a multiple vitamin supplement. I will take a fish oil, oil often with curcumin in it. Uh, I will take my uh, my Qualia skin. Uh, I will use some of the other products uh, as well. Uh, and um, I do the, quality, the uh, sleep at night. But, but really, um, that's, you need, we're not getting enough of these powerful phytonutrients from plants. And yeah. you're, you're not seeing that in these multiple vitamin preparations. So, uh, but I want to segue here. Um, you, I know, are, uh, a bit of an expert on gut, brain, skin. Uh, it is such an important emerging uh, area. Um, and because all disease, quote unquote, begins in the gut, because we know so much more about leaky gut and the microbiome and uh, all the things that the microbiome does, talk to us about the connection between the gut and the skin. Well, I'll just give you some interesting things to think about, I guess, to begin with. Um, the first is your guts are kind of like the roots of your body, but they're on the inside. And so trees have roots on the outside and we have hair, skin, and nails on our outside and trees have bark and leaves and fruit. So when I look at a human versus a, a plant, I'm looking at two separate kinds of organisms that have very different designs, but have actually they're both require nutrients and water and air to grow. And so we, um, we have these roots on our insides. Our gut health is really fundamental to our ability to absorb nutrients. So I've actually seen people with micronutrient deficiencies and because of malabsorption from small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, I've seen people who, you know, basically have dysbiosis from years of antibiotic use and it, it's reared its head through acne and through problems with detoxification. Um, and, you know, so you really need to look at your gut health and ask yourself, like, is your gut health also affecting your mental function? So we have a vagus nerve that's traveling from our brain, our brainstem to our gut, and it helps us modulate the, the, the parasympathetic arm of the nervous system. And this is the arm of the nervous system that actually technically has what's called the dorsal and the ventral arms. But the ventral arm of the vagus nerve is designed to help you basically rest and digest and tend and befriend. It's, it's really helped, it's here to help you relax. And um, on the other flip side, we've got the sympathetic nervous system that help, helps us get out of danger. But the problem is, is that a lot of people are living in existences that are constantly stressful. So that constant state of stress can actually impact your digestion. 
So your brain can actually affect your gut and that can affect your skin. And you can actually just tell by looking at someone who's been highly stressed out or doesn't sleep well, they just don't look like they have as much luminosity to their skin. They don't have as much energy. And then at the same time, if you have inflammation in your gut from dysbiosis, that can actually cause inflammation in the brain. So there's this bi-directional relationship between the gut and the brain that if one of them are, is off, it's going to affect the other. Sure. And that's the beauty of the connection of the body. Um, I'd love to ask, actually ask, ask you a few more questions about yourself. Um, sure. So earlier in your career, I know you were part of a team that created the Fraxel laser, which I know is very yes. popular. Yes. And you, know, you basically yes. introduced this concept of fractional resurfacing to clinicians and consumers all around the world. Um, so this was like one of the many breakthroughs in skin rejuvenation. I know this is something people are really interested in learning more about. So like, I would love to know what you think that we should know, we, you know, as consumers, cause I'm not obviously an expert in lasers and resurfacing and radio frequency. Like, what should we be thinking about procedures? Like I'm 38, right. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of women out there that are in their thirties. I mean, what, what would you be asked? Like, what would you be recommending a woman in her late thirties start to think about? Um, in terms of different types of interventions. I mean, I, I, I do admit to doing a little bit of Botox, but that's it. I don't do fillers. I haven't done anything else aside from using skin topicals. Yeah, let's start there though, because uh, sure. the average woman uh, in her lifetime, uh, one survey showed, will spend between $200,000 and $300,000 on topicals. That's insane. Yeah, except I was in, uh, gave a talk in LA and some woman said, is that all? So, but cut the number in half. It's still a big number. And you think about it, uh, you know, I, if you ask our female viewers to open up their medicine chest, yeah. what do you have there? You've got 20 products in various stages of disuse and use a little this one. And then you heard that this was better. So I think you, you really want to have good skincare, which is yeah. four things. It's, you need a mineral based SPF and a good one that you use yeah. early and often. Mm -hmm. You wanna have barrier protection. So this is the concept of moisturization. Right and most things, the reality is that most of the topicals just work by moisturization. Then you start looking at what are the active molecules that can help the skin? So the real question is what gets into the skin? Because the skin is really designed as part of that innate uh, uh, immune system. It's, it's a barrier function. It doesn't like to let a lot of stuff in. So the yeah. molecules have to be small. So vitamin C is, is the, uh, the poster child because it's, it's, it sizes something called it's 600 Daltons, which means it's small cool. enough to get in the skin. So I think that vitamin C is important. I think that mixing that with hyaluronic acid, which will only go down to the the, the dermal epidermal junction for the most part, but can help draw things into the skin. I think that's another important one. Uh, there, there are peptides that are yeah. spectacular these days. There's been so much research. Uh, I don't know if we can mention anything, but there's a, a, a technology called Trihex, uh, company's Elastin, and they make a beautiful peptide molecule and there's other peptide molecules. Now, the next step is the retinols, the retinoids. Right. And the reason that you use that is that as you age, your skin turnover gets slower and slower and slower. So for you in your 30s, maybe you're turning your skin over 30, uh, every 35 days. I'm older than you, so normally I would maybe be every 40 days. But with the retinols and retinoids, you can turn your skin over in two weeks. And so you get this, this new skin being created every two weeks. So I think that's important as well. And uh, so those are your, uh, your sort of basic categories. Uh, now, once you move over into injections mm -hmm. and procedures, of course, every woman now is really listening very carefully for this. Right. I break them down into two categories. There are the hyaluronic acids, which are injected into the face, they're basically inert. They don't stimulate really anything. As long as they're there, they're attracting a thousand times their own weight in water. They're puffing the skin up. Uh, they are filling in uh, areas that are, that are depressed. And when 
they go away when they're catabolized, broken down, they're gone. Then there are injectables that are biostimulatory. Now the biostimulatory ones, remember we talked about all those collagen, those uh, uh, amino acids. Right. Uh, well, they, can we direct them to a place in the skin to start making collagen? And that's what biostimulatory things do. So there are um, uh, different kinds of uh, injectables. I talk about them in the book that are biostimulatory fat. When you take fat from one part of the body, micronize it, put it in small little pieces, put it into the face, that's biostimulatory. And then gotcha. you have to use the biostimulatory kinds of uh, uh, procedures. Now, I, I, in the book, I don't talk much about facials because they're part of routine skincare, but I really like to focus on the energies that into the skin and have the skin respond. And that was the basis of the Fraxel. The Fraxel brought, made these little columns, which allowed uh, for there to be healthy skin around each little hole, microscopic, almost microscopic holes. And the skin healed very quickly. But what happens, we also shocked the skin at the deeper level okay. and that caused this biosimulation. So that's what we do when we do bring heat into the skin with oh. ultrasound or radio frequency. We are essentially heating up that dermis and here's oh. what happens. Here's what happens. a little injury. Exactly. And, yeah. and now what happens when you heat up the dermis, the collagen mo molecule unwinds and shortens. It, Diet is essentially becomes inactive and it becomes the scaffold upon which new collagen is created. So uh, that's how that process, and that process may take up to six months for you, for you to create new collagen. Oh, I see. Sometimes called collagen remodeling or collagen neogenesis, new collagen. So I'm a firm believer in those kinds of things. So would, that be, would an example of that be like the profound laser? Well, I don't, you know, I don't want to get into uh, names. I'm, of, I just, I'm, I'm just curious, like, what's an example? Well, of, example, like, let me give you, let me give you examples of categories. Okay. Um, you can bring heat in, into the skin with ultrasound. You can bring skin into the, uh, with, with a laser, uh, with laser energy. You can bring in, uh, wound the skin with micro needles. It's a little mm. different kind of an injury. Uh, but you can do that in cooperation in conjunction with radio frequency. So very often you're seeing these micro needling with radio frequency. Now, I say all of this and we sort of toss it out rather glibly, but the real issue, I think, is to make sure that you're going to a well-trained individual in any of these more invasive kinds of activities. Uh, I have personally seen complications with every single one of wow. the uh, You will see it. It's rare. You'll, I'll see it reported at a meeting. In competent hands, people should always be uh, feel comfortable. Oh, which procedure was this again? Oh, what this is for, uh, for all of the energy. Anytime you're doing something to wound the skin, mm. uh, you have the possibility of wounding it too much. Or People have different skin types as well. We have to be very, very, very careful on people of darker skin types. The reason being is they hyperpigment. They will, uh, you will bring too much heat and they will hyperpigment or you'll flare up melasma. Melasma is a oh, terrible yeah. problem for mainly uh, for women. Uh, it's a hormonally induced uh, uh, pigmentation. Uh, it's chronic for the most part. It flares up uh, with heat. Uh, it is, it's very, very challenging. So uh, all of those are, again, you know, we come down to the issue of personalization. Now, I think there's some things that everybody should do. I, I think you should take your qualia every day, uh, your qualia skin and some of their other products, which, you know, you could certainly speak to as well. Sure. But, but then it's, you know, there's no other person on this planet, Molly, with skin that's the same as yours. Mm. So what you need and how you are aging and your nutrient needs 
uh, and your exercise habits and your hormonal status and the drugs you may be taking that cause drug nutrient depletions. I mean, we've got 26 million Americans on statins. You talked so yeah. eloquently about mitochondria. And yet, you know, we know that, that those statins deplete CoQ10. Yeah. Essential for mitochondrial. Function. I have both my parents on coenzyme Q10 so that they can make sure that, you know, because like the thing is, people don't realize is that when you deplete coenzyme Q10, you cause mitochondrial dysfunction. And that's part of the reason why I think we're seeing uh, insulin resistance in a lot of statin patients. I mean, like a lot of people don't even realize that their statin can cause insulin resistance and increase risk of diabetes, which can increase risk of heart disease, by the way. And so sure. I'm just not convinced that we have the right strategy, you know? Yeah. You know, so I, I, I'd love for you, I've been reading a lot more about uh, obesity as an inflammatory disease. You know, I'll talk to some people and they'll say, well, I'm not, I'm not really, you know, that bad. I've got a gut, uh, you know, I've got a higher BMI than I should, but you know, I'm a, I'm a guy, I'm tough. I look really good. Um, and then how do you segue and have that discussion about fat being an inflammatory organ? And if it's inflammatory, it's inflammatory to the skin as well. Well, so the thing that I really want people to realize about fat and inflammation is that not all fat is created equal in the body. So subcutaneous fat distributed evenly throughout the body, which I have, um, which everybody has, is far, far, far better for you than visceral fat. So I don't have, I have very little visceral fat. I had my, my body tested with a DEXA scan and that's extraordinarily protective because visceral fat is the inflammatory fat. So like, now this is my personal perspective on visceral fat. It, 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 I, I'm, I'm definitely using metaphors and I'm definitely using my own interpretation. So don't take this as like firm scientific grounding, but I, I've tried to explain to people who don't understand visceral fat, like this is the way I see it because it doesn't make a lot of sense why our bodies would store fat in two different places. But there's this concept of like ectopic fat storage. So our body has certain storage depots where it can distribute leftover food and store it as extra energy. So fuel is really necessary to survive, right? We have, I have about 120,000 calories on my body that would last me in about a month if I were starving. So we have to have fat on our bodies to survive. The problem is, is that you can be basically over fat and overweight or not overweight. So there are plenty of people who are lean and over fat, just as like there are plenty of people overweight and also over fat. What do I mean by this? I mean that there's parts of your body that are going to have ectopic fat storage, which means fat stored in a place where it shouldn't be. You should not be storing a bunch of extra fat around your organs. That is not healthy. Our organs are supposed to have a lot less fat than, than they do in modern with modern American diets. The theory behind ectopic fat storage is that when you fill up a lot of your storage in your you know, subcutaneous locations um, and or you, I think the theory is, is that if you're consuming more food than your body can actually keep up with, which is a problem with overeating and over consuming high fat, high sugar foods in particular that are particularly bad for insulin output and insulin resistance. What you end up having is the body has a spillover effect. And so your body spills fat into the viscera. And that basically ends up, you know, putting fat around organs, which is where they cause problems. Your body is like responding to this extra fuel. Like, wait, what is this doing here? I don't know what to do with this. And I, I got to put it somewhere. And so it, it spills into the viscera, which it makes sense because that's where it's processed. Sure, sure, so sure. whether or not I'm completely right here or not, it makes the most sense to me. And I've sat a lot, I've sat around thinking deeply about metabolism and <laughs> we forget first principles, right? We forget that you can't take a car and pour a bunch of extra gas in the gas tank without it filling up and go and spilling out. So I don't see why the body is that much different. Yeah. So if you look at the different types of fat, yeah, subcutaneous fat is actually uh, uh, what we use when we harvest some stem cells. Yeah. So within this fat, there are some. Uh, a portion called the stromal vascular fraction. Yeah. But what it really is, is are, are, are the stem cells and some of the body's 
uh, healing proteins, uh, exosomes, that actually when we harvest them and we re-inject them, we spin them down, we uh, purify it, and we put it back into areas of the face. And uh, through improved techniques, uh, if, if you are young, uh, young being under 55, yeah. you, uh, you can get about 80% of the fat to take to stay, mm. stay there. And it's, it's better in a lot of ways than some of the fillers uh, because it's of its permanence. Uh, if you are much older than 60, 65, that really drops down to 30 or 40% taking. But, but it, it does show the importance of, of fat as a, an important metabolic organ. And of course, then there's also brown fat and brown fat, of course, we don't have a lot of it. Uh, it is sure. metabolically active fat, but there are some uh, uh, nutraceuticals, uh, some uh, compounds that will upregulate uh, the brown fat in the body. And brown fat is, since it's metabolically active, it will burn some calories. So uh, yeah. I think that's an interesting concept as well, uh, certainly. Uh, let's come back to the, to the gut, because I, I think that that would be a good place to almost kind of... Uh, begin our, our wind down. You know, I, I think of the gut health as in two parts, sort of leaky gut uh, and, and that concept yeah. of how that affects the skin and then the microbiome. So with the leaky gut, what we have is we have these gaps and these uh, endotoxins, these bacterial fragments uh, get in the the, the outer shells of some of the gram negative bacteria, but things that shouldn't be in the bloodstream are in the blood, get in the bloodstream. And they actually go to organs in the body where they create something called molecular mimicry, which is, there's this little protein fragment, these peptides, and they're floating around the blood. They shouldn't be there. And they go to a knee and that, the, the cartilage. And then somehow or other, they kind of sort of fit into the receptor site and there's inflammation at that site. So uh, the first you know, set of principles would be to obviously reduce this leaky gut. Sure. The other one, and, and, and we could talk, I, I'm curious about your strategies for what you do for leaky gut. Mm -hmm. uh, another piece of that. Yeah. I'll come back to that. And I always tend to ask two questions. So we sure. can chat for a long period of time here is, uh, you know, the, the role of these short chain fatty acids, this is yeah. where fiber goes and it makes these short chain fatty acids, the bacteria. Butyrate. Butyrate. butyrate and, and even more important than butyrate, butyrate really helps the lining of the GI tract. Right. But propionate is. Oh, tell me chain. more about propionate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's three uh, short chain fatty acids right. by the bacteria feeding on their favorite food, fiber. So, what you have butyrate, you have acetate, and you propionate. Of the three, the butyrate stays more in the gut to heal the gut lining. The propionate is what goes out uh, into the bloodstream in the largest percentage and quantities. And that's what makes its way to the skin. So this, another reason, at least chemically, you know, we talk about, I like to, I started a society with a colleague called the Vegas Nerve Society. Love it. Uh, VNsociety.org. And what we talked about is, is the af we talked about the afferent part of the vagus nerve system. The vagus nerve has efferent signals go from the brain to the gut, but 80% of it is from the organs, primarily the gut to the brain. Yeah. And even though we say, we love to say, the gut makes 90, 80, 90% of the serotonin and the neurotransmitters, that doesn't make it to the brain. Uh, per se, it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier, it tickles the vagus nerve. And that vagus nerve innervates pretty much everything. So we are, I like to say that we are electrochemical beings. Yes. We've got these feeling is voltage. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes. And we have to, and, and that's really what we're doing when you think about it. Uh, when we tickle the gut. Yeah. Uh, we're tickling the bacteria. We're tickling the gut. Well, we're also not realizing that there's a, there's gut, there's a microbiome mitochondria interactions. Yes. So they, they definitely influence each other and they derive, I mean, we derived mitochondria from primitive bacteria. Mm. So it's not surprising that there is this 
or I'm sensing in crosstalk between these two systems. And, you know, it makes sense because they help, right? Our microbiome helps us regulate our energy. I mean, they literally, our microbiome helps us determine how much energy we can drive from food. So it's not surprising that there is a relationship there. Yeah, this, uh, you know, when you think about the most attractive person, you know, the healthiest person, you'll always describe them in terms of radiant, energetic, passionate, glowing. Yes. And, uh, you know, I've been in aesthetics for a long time. We see people who come in who, you know, they, they want to be beautiful, but they also need to be beautiful from the inside out. And I, I, I yeah. think that this, this concept of, of feeding yourself, loving to feed yourself yes. healthy food, deserving healthy food. Oh my God. Can I tell you out. personally, just want to add something really interesting. Sure. So having been a woman for like, you know, my entire life, <laughs> but having like been a woman who in the last year finally got over emotional eating, it was oh. a really, really big piece of it was trying to drop all shame I had around food yes. and any trauma in my life that I've experienced. And I feel like a lot of women don't realize that unresolved emotional pain is, is part of the reason why they're searching for food to quell their stress. So we have this primitive response in fear to go into a state of finding food and finding nutrition and nourishment, because we think that that's what's going to make us feel safe, but no amount of food is ever going to feed and feed and fix emotional pain. And so I know there's a lot of women listening to this today and aren't realizing that, you know, a lot of their emotional eating is not their fault, but it's, it's, there's stuff under the surface that hasn't been addressed yet. And so it's been really interesting experience to like, not feel like I'm driven by my cravings anymore. And it was really fixing that. I mean, it was really came through working on my, my psycho spirituality more so than even working on my diet that got me to this place. This is fascinating. Uh, I'm going to bring something totally out of left sure. field. Uh, it's, it's just, just well, as, we're energy uh, beings, right? So if your energy just, shifts, then you're, there you go. Just, that, just as Doc's talking. So one of the things I've done for about five years is train healthcare professionals to become irresistibly powerful communicators. Along with a colleague, we do a program called Present Well. We used to do it. We trained about 1,200 so far. Wow. Uh, we usually lock people in days before the pandemic in a room for a couple of days. And we help them work through their uh, fears, their barriers, yeah. to being yeah. a powerful communicator, both in yeah. person and on camera. Now, yep. here's the issue. Within every single one of those people who are struggling, there's a couple of things. There's a wounded individual Always. or our wounded healer mm -hmm. because we are drawn to medicine for so many different Absolutely. And, uh, and along the way, it beats us up. I mean, there's suffering and pain and cases. Medicine is suffering. I mean, it's, <laughs> it is literally PTSD inducing for most doctors. It is doctors. PTSD. Almost so, everybody who becomes a doctor has PTSD from becoming exactly, a doctor. <laughs> exactly. So what has to happen? And I, I think you've really touched on this. And that is the ability to jump over that barrier, make that leap, become comfortable with yourself. And yeah. then once you do that, you can irradiate authenticity. Yeah. But until you get over that barrier, and so much of that, that uh, the, the, those eating behaviors are a way to sort of numb your body, numb your senses, yeah. dampen things down, push things down. And I, I really do think that, that part of being beautiful is the ability to accept and love yourself uh, and get over and accept and get over the trauma. Some of it's yeah. really painful, but I mean, we have to get it's there. the secret to weight loss. I mean, yes. a lot of women who struggle with weight loss, I mean, obviously you do need to clean up your diet. Like sure. the reality is, is that if you don't clean up your diet, you're not going to lose weight. But I've seen a lot of women do that and adopt a lot of the habits and behaviors that reduce calories and increase exercise, and they're not losing weight. And the, the, every doctor says, just eat less and exercise more. And yet when people aren't getting those results, it's often because their body is in a state of threat and hypervigilance and fear. And the mitochondria in that state do not have normal metabolism. There's actually um, this brilliant, brilliant theory called the cell danger response. I believe it's by Navio. And he's this researcher in mitochondrial health. And basically what he presupposes 
is that for a lot of people, especially people with chronic disease and chronic illness and obesity, their mitochondria have become so dysfunctional because of years of dealing with chronic stress and chronic threat and trauma, um, maybe even abuse and neglect from childhood. And their nervous systems are so tuned to danger and threat that they can't drop into safety. And it's in a state of safety and relaxation, comfort, yes. trust, love, that we are able to actually have normally functioning mitochondria and normally functioning nervous system. And when I figured this out, I was like, holy crap, like modern medicine <laughs> is missing something really big because we're trying to throw these really big guns at these really hard problems. And we're not seeing great results or outcomes. And we're also seeing doctors falling apart at the seams. So if this system that we've created is particularly good for battlefield medicine, but not good for chronic disease, then we need to start creating new systems for chronic disease based on new theories and new first principles. And when I really just, when I really just got deep into mitochondrial science, it, it made everything make more sense. You know, sure. it made everything fall into place for me and my health dramatically improved. So I, I'm in violent agreement with you. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> love it. Uh, you know, we have our patients, our friends, even ourselves are often in these states of sympathetic dominance. And one of my colleagues uh, who I started the Vegas Nurse Society with coined the term uh, vagal insufficiency. So we are, we are so sympathetic dominant so that all of the really good things that we do, breathing and yoga and meditation and Tai Chi and taking a hot bath, yeah. all of that is designed to bring up parasympathetic tone. And yes. one of the real issues that, that I find is that people haven't learned to control and master the workings of their parasympathetic nervous system to help them in this uh, state, to get into states of relaxation and healing. So right. I, I think that, right. you know, we do this with mitochondria, we do it with the, the, the gut health, we do it with vagal nerve stimulation, we do it with lifestyle changes. And you know, the interesting thing, and I'm going to come back to our beginning little wrap up here, all of that stuff and the right phytonutrients in the right sure. combinations uh, help to create beautiful glowing skin. And yes. the way I, I describe this to my colleagues, because uh, I speak to colleagues in, in integrative medicine and colleagues in aesthetics, is that there's this room. Molly and I, Dr. Molly and Dr. Mark want to get people in a room. And that room is to be the best you can be, have a great health span, live a wonderful life, be a great person. And if we can get you in through that door, a big door called skin health and beauty. Yeah. We can walk you into the, the door of, of you want to look good, but you know what? To look good, you've got to be healthy. You've got to get those mitochondria working and the metabolism working and your energy. So yes. that's, and, and where I look at Qualia Skin is it's an aid for that. It's an aid for getting the right combination of nutrients, uh, minerals, uh, some phyto, and these critical phytonutrients, which are great phytonutrients. So Dr. Molly, what fun. What, we should do this really again. Great. I would love to do this blast. again. Let's yeah. do this again. I learned a lot from you. So thank you so much, by the way. It really means a ton. Thank and you. I think what I'll leave the audience with is like, at the end of the day, you know, for you to be able to relax into safety, trust, and love, it always begins with your relationship to yourself and your ability to really connect with who you are and how you feel about you. And from that place of deep inner, inner, inner compassion, it'll be so much easier for you to find love um, outside of yourself. And really it's through our relationships, our families, our friends, our community, our partners, that's where we find real true healing. And a lot of people don't realize that the greatest factor associated with long-term health and happiness is in fact, human relationships, healthy human relationships. So um, love of who you are and love of others is really the secret to great skin, but also some really cool evidence. That, that <laughs> so amen to that for folks. Carotenoids are helpful too. Yeah, carotenoids, a and minerals. Right, a little fiber. Uh, 
for folks who want to uh, stay in touch with us, what's your social media handle? Sure. I'm at drmolly.co, drmolly.co, and on Twitter at Molly Maloof, MD. And follow me on LinkedIn at Molly Maloof, MD. And i um, love to hear from you. Yeah. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. Uh, and I do Instagram at drmtager. And my best uh, website, if you want to learn more about my background, is drtager.com. Great. Thanks, Molly. Dr. Molly. Thank you. Take care. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.